0: Hello, I'm John Pollitz, Dean of Library Affairs at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and your host for Saluki Stories. Today's story is the second of a two part episode featuring Jimmy Wright, who received a master's degree in fine arts from SIU in 1971. This episode, we will hear about Jimmy's life after Carbondale. Jimmy talks about his move to New York City and his book *Jimmy Wright: Bathhouse, Meatpacking District, and the Dream Cards*, New York Underground, 1973 to 1990. He also talks about how he came to paint his large-scale plant still lifes. Let's listen to Jimmy tell his story and dive right in. Now let's talk about what happened after you your contract was out up. Well,
1: again, SIU comes came to the rescue. Uh, the art department had another visiting art critic, and it was a former um, a former instructor in the art department, uh, Bruce Kurtz. Uh, Bruce Bruce had an MFA from the University of Iowa, and Bruce taught in a small liberal arts. School in upstate New York, in Oneonta, New York, in a school called Hartwick College, and Bruce actually was a visiting instructor for two years in a row, or a visiting artist two years in a row. So i
0: uh-huh.
1: I had sort of introduced myself to him the first year that he visited. So the second time he came to Carbondale. Uh, you know, he sort of sought me out. It was, it was, yeah. Uh, yeah Bruce yeah. was also gay and, and it was a gay person that, that he could relate to, et cetera. And yeah. so, um, uh, Bruce knew I didn't have a job. And it just so happened, half the faculty in a very s- small art department at Hartwick, uh, I think there were two or three faculty members that were taking sabbatical and it all fell on the same year. And he had, um, uh, he wasn't the chair. He was head of art history. He didn't teach a studio uh-huh. class. Uh, but I was hired to replace the printmaker.
0: Who, uh, okay.
1: Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was hired to create a printmaking department.
0: Oh, really? Wow.
1: Uh, in a new fine arts building, a whole new uh, facility. and so I built uh, I built an etching uh, studio and I taught drawing. and uh, a lot of that was in place, but I was the person that had to organize it. All the equipment arrived when yeah. I was there. I had to get it all up and running and watch wow. a class yeah. very quickly. Uh, and Oneonta is near, is over the hill from Cooperstown, where the Baseball Hall of Fame yeah. is. This is all uh, upstate New York is incredibly beautiful, rolling yes. green uh, mountain hills. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I would just say it looked like a Norman Rockwell painting. It was ideal America, uh, really. And so I taught there for a year, but in that year, um, knew I didn't want to stay there. Uh huh. Um, Carbondale was much more. Cosmopolitan because of the size <laughs> of it, you know? Uh, oh, sure. Yeah. I, the proximity okay. is I was kind of laughing there, Chicago, but yeah. <laughs> Straight line to St. Louis. Um, right. Right. Um, and I decided the heck with it. I'm moving to New York where I can uh, essentially be myself and uh, be an artist. And uh, that I could live a life that defined that for me, that I could define for myself, and that I could only do that in New York.
0: Um, Only Only in New York?
1: Only in New York. I had spent a summer, Bruce and I, before I started teaching at Hartwick, I left Carbondale. Uh, Bruce picked me up and we drove to Los Angeles.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Bruce is
1: originally from California and we rented a beach house together in sunset beach, uh, just below LA. And, uh, so I spent a summer on the beach and Bruce, uh, being a New York art writer for arts magazine,
0: Oh really? Yeah, was yeah.
1: very centered on his art criticism career. So uh-huh. I turn around one day and Linda Benglis has driven out in a porch <laughs> to spend the day with us on wow. on the beach. Yeah. Uh, uh, Cal Arts was fairly new, maybe only a year or two years old, uh-huh. and so I go to a dinner it wasn't woman's house but it was another feminist art gallery in LA and uh, uh, Richard Sarah was there Uh, Eleanor Anton a conceptual woman artist feminist Uh artist was there Um, uh, I think Linda was at that dinner I mean, it was like I was meeting all these inter- everyone interesting that I met, with whom I had a really interesting conversation, were f- artists centered in New York.
0: So uh, when
1: I went to teach at Carbondale, yeah. the seed is already planted. I mean, to teach at Hartwick, the seed uh, was yeah, already yeah. planted. That you know, there's there's a lot happening in LA. But L.A. reminded me of Tokyo. Uh, you okay. you have to drive forty miles to a college uh, yeah. opening.
0: Right, uh, right, right. You
1: know, I had that experience in L.A. We were. You're you need a really wonderful car that you love because you spend a huge amount of time in it. Uh, <laughs> uh, so. Um, so already, that's, that's where the seed was planted, that New York was a really interesting place and that you could work all over the world from New York. Yeah, uh, it,
0: it really is, isn't it?
1: So, um, so I taught that time at Hartwick and um, went to visit, like you, a photography major, who had taken a drawing class from me.
0: Really? So I had
1: an address (laughs) for someone in New York, Uh, this David Sasser, who was part of the gay lib group. I had his address in New York. So I went to New York. I think I stayed with David Sasser and uh, who lived in um, Park Slope. And I went to Borum Hill, Brooklyn to visit uh, David Wilson and his wife, Adele Wilson. And I said, Well, I'm really thinking I'm going to move to New York. And they said, Well, if you're serious, the apartment upstairs is vacant.
0: Really? (laughs) The landlords
1: are terrific. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think the next day uh, they introduced me to the landlord who was pregnant with twins. Oh, you're an artist. Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah, sure. Really? <laughs> we'll rent, really. We'll rent the apartment to you. And so you see behind me this poster for Basquiat Warhol show. Uh, yeah. Just a few days ago, I went to see a Basquiat show uh, from, from the Family Foundation, put on by the Family Foundation,
0: uh-huh. yeah.
1: with my landlords from Brooklyn, John and Terry Urban. <laughs> Who became became wonderful friends? Uh, I lived in their their apartment, I think, for two years, and Basquiat's father, Gerard, uh, lived uh, across the owned a brownstone across the street, and so um, I mean, it's so small world.
0: Yeah, Uh, yeah. So I mean, yeah,
1: I didn't know Basquiat as a teenager until i met him maybe four years later in at an opening in soho and he walked up to me and said hey you're that artist that lived across the street
0: from me no. <laughs> wow no kidding <laughs> so tell me a little bit a little bit about your bathhouse paintings my
1: notorious series of gay life before it aids um, these are all works on paper Made in, uh, I think, 1975, 76, um, and at so that's my first two years in New York, and yeah. the the SIU graduate that lived below me was an aspiring filmmaker, so he came from the photography. Uh, Department. Right.
0: okay sure wow uh
1: wow. and he was a um production manager on television commercial shoots on small film shoots this is when everything before video this is everything is on film right. analog yeah. um so i had been in new york for two weeks um and he got a job as production manager for a small, low-budget, uh, non-union feature film. And he knocked on my door and said, I'm hiring you.
0: He ah, really?
1: yeah, <laughs> said, for yeah. what? And he says, you're going to do props <laughs> and costumes for this film I'm working really? on. And so ah. the uh, it turned out to be... Um, The producer was straight, the director was straight, uh, most of the crew was straight, but they were making a gay theme, a gay liberation theme film. I don't know how that came about, uh, (laughs) but uh, it's called Saturday Night at the Baz, and so it's sort of a conflicted young man who hasn't decided whether he's gay or not, and it's set in the Continental Baths and the the Continental Baths were famous overnight because of Bette Midler performing there. And she'd been on Johnny Carson and Johnny Carson and all these notable New York celebrities had been to this nightclub that was centered in the middle of a gay bathhouse. Um, I had been to um, bathhouses in, Bruce Kurtz had introduced me to bathhouses in Los Angeles. Just as part
0: of go to
1: a gay bar, you go to a gay bathhouse. Um, So I was shocked when I went into uh, the Continental Uh, Baths. Not that it was a gay bathhouse, but that it looked like a Southern Illinois roadhouse. Uh, it was all. It was all chintzy decor. The white piano that Barry Manilow played at was was actually white contact paper. On yeah. really? yeah. <laughs> so it was like everything was. Everything's a prop. Everything's a um, a false front for something else. Yeah. Um. So, um, <laughs> I then decided. I was going to visit every bathhouse in New York. Uh, And this is a, this was an incredible moment in gay life in New York. Christopher street was, was packed every weekend with uh, gay men. Uh, The Christopher street bars were, were uh, flourishing. Um, I was, I'm not someone that drinks a lot. Uh, I was never really um, a part of of um, bar culture. I you Uh know I traveled all over the world. I'm a traveler. (laughs) I'm a tourist. Uh, I'm a diarist. I'm I'm collecting images, and so Uh, I would. And this is a very wide open world in New York City, in the in the 70s. And um, so I, I would the next day um, do drawings of where I'd been or what I'd seen. Um, yeah. And so they were done from a kind of, of um, uh, photographic memory of characters and scenes. Uh, and at the same time, I was playing with formal elements of uh, basically multiple styles. So so when I had this portfolio of drawings that were just kind of observations of gay life, they weren't realistic drawings. Right, Uh, right. They weren't a singular... Formal style or formal statement, um, wow. and they were not gay pornography. They were not made to glorify um, in or fetishize a particular yeah. lifestyle. They they were just right. raw experiences, and yeah. um, um, no one. Would touch them <laughs> even yeah. even the founders of what is now one of the largest collections of gay art in New York the Leslie Lohman Center uh, uh, very quickly went through my portfolio this is before they had a museum and they would review works uh, you can make an appointment for them to look at your drawings uh, you know really? I, uh, Tom of Finland is a name some people may be familiar with who did very stylized, eroticized uh, gay content in the 70s on, uh, my work had no relationship to anything that would be considered um, um, a stylization of a particular, glorifying the human physique in some way. Uh, These were like social commentary and they were also commentary. They were very expressionist in in the sense that they were commentary of me uh, seeing how gay men, gay women assume various identities within their lives in order to navigate the complications of being outsiders. Um, So, there are about 80, about 82 drawings in this series. Yeah. Uh, some are just, some are very crude sketches and some are very uh, finished, uh, more finished pieces. Right. Um, and uh, so the book was published when? 2016. Along yeah, that. I think
0: so. Yeah. The drawings
1: yeah. were so um, Corbett versus Dempsey in Chicago is the gallery that uh, took this work. They took all of my work uh, from yeah. from Carbondale on. Uh, yeah. um, they showed a body. We framed it. We, we framed some of it and we showed it for the first time in the New Art Dealers Association Art Fair in 2013 here in New York. And they had... Um, They were doing lots of European international art exhibit, art fairs, so um, paintings from 1975 were shown at Art Cologne, selection of the drawings were shown at Art Freeze in London, Um, and then uh, 2018, Uh, Well, I started showing with David Fearman here in New York. uh, And that's the body of the work. That's the first body of work that he wanted to show. Uh, And out of that show, the Whitney bought two pieces. Um, I got lots, lots of attention. Um, The book has, the book was what introduced me to many many people, and especially to, to uh, a lot of, uh, of younger folk that are in their 30s and 40s. Yeah. Um, so it's served, it's served me well.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a powerful book, and it must have been a, been a powerful show.
1: Well, and it it's was...
0: Sort of an insightful, I think.
1: Well, it was such an incredible moment yeah, in yeah. in gay history, for everything to be so free, it's sort of like, Weimar Berlin, you know. It's, it's a moment, yeah. and then AIDS happened, and it ended very tragically. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And now, of course, we see what a virus can do to an entire. It 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 was so devastating to the gay community. It was so devastating to. Um, Uh, like uh, communities of color, uh, two communities that are uh, shunted aside in terms of economic uh, and health opportunities. And of course, when you have a pandemic, that's devastating. And of course, now we've seen that replay with
0: COVID. Right.
1: Uh, Just the idea of hospitals having no beds and someone with a heart attack can't find a bed because everyone has COVID. Right. Uh, So we see what a weakness in the system, health system, does uh, to larger society. Um, So.
0: But with AIDS, it was.
1: Well, with AIDS, people, it was so politicized. More, it was moralized. Yeah.
0: This is the era of Jesse yeah. Helms, Ronald yeah.
1: Reagan. Uh, you would think the Reagans uh, being from Hollywood, uh, they wouldn't help their gay friends. At no. least not publicly. Yeah. Um, right. So, uh, I know my own, uh, my father uh, had passed away, but my mother was alive, and she was terrified that I was going to be identified as someone with AIDS or someone who was queer. And oh, um, yeah, you know, I think she was her fear was always put in religious terms, but I think the real fear was social terms that she would be
0: yeah, she would yeah. suffer
1: socially right having having a gay child uh, so.
0: well no, yeah i my that's very powerful but i think there's another uh, I, we're coming towards the end of it but i i really would like to hear if you if you don't mind talk about how you came to paint sunflowers
1: so um so my partner um my partner was uh, Ken Nuzo, and he was a he worked for the comptroller of the treasury. He had a master's in business from NYU, and he was a native of Chicago. And his father was a plumber. My father was a farmer. Uh, we he was Catholic. I was Protestant. But, uh, oh, and he'd only been out six months or so when I met him. Uh, and I'd been out since I was to myself, at least since I was a kid. Uh, yeah. so, uh, we had very different experiences in life, but we had very similar core values. Um, uh, Ken was diagnosed in 1988 with Carposy's sarcoma, a diagnosis made by the dermatologist, uh, We had been suspicious for years, meaning from from the early 80s, we were suspicious. Uh, Ken had come back. Ken would go on international trips for the uh, Treasury Department. And uh, he went to Brazil and he came back with a skin rash that turned into something, uh, it was athlete's foot, but it was just, uh, you know, a horrible fungal infection. Things, uh-huh. you know, in other words, the immune system was breaking down and you dare not get an HIV test because if you tested positive, you could lose all your medical insurance. There was no protection. Oh. Insurance companies would immediately kick you off the rows. So, oh. Oh my. so yeah. there was a punitive action taken if you tested for HIV. Uh, you know, and this is before in the early 80's, there wasn't a name for it. It was the, the gay pneumonia was one, one name. Um, so so that we had had no tests, we were suspicious that he had a, had some deep uh, immune deficiency. Uh, 1988, he's diagnosed with KS. And that's it, that's an AIDS diagnosis. Uh, So he died in 91, so he lived three years with uh, progressive full-blown AIDS. And uh, overnight, your whole life turns upside down. And overnight, my whole life was uh, uh, to take care of him as best I could to support him in any kind of medical uh, situation. Um, and um, this is a role I had, like happens to many caretakers. It's a role you take on with no experience. And, yeah. and uh, in my situation, no support system. Um, and so I didn't know how I was going It was so intense. Uh, I didn't know how uh, I was going to survive myself. I was negative, Ken was positive. And I decided, I don't know when I'm ever going to paint. Will I ever paint again? Will I ever be able to concentrate to paint again? Will I have time? Can I afford to paint? There were all these questions And I decided, well, I'm going to do what I've never done in my life. I'm going to paint still lifes. I can set something up in the studio. I can paint it for whenever I have time to go to the studio to paint. My new studio was the second floor of my house. Um, And because it's a still life, The continuity never changes. I can walk in and out of this painting without thinking about it. Um, And I'm not Cezanne. Uh, I'm not (laughs) Matisse. Uh, I don't know what this is going to be. Um, I was basically a... uh, a black sheep, Chicago Imagist uh, in New York. Uh, so, I didn't know what I was going to paint. At the same time, I didn't have money. I didn't have s- extra money to spend in the studio. So, just to put together a stretcher and canvas, you you spend money. Uh, yeah. So I lived. On the Bowery. The Bowery was um, a corridor with industrial lofts where all you know light industry had left New York. And all those lofts were filled with artists, primarily painters, but all kinds of artists. And I'm walking along the Bowery to go to my house, which is an old horse stable, 1890 horse stable. And Mm -hmm. I see a huge dumpster container uh, in the street in front of a loft building. And I see big paintings sticking out all over the place. And I think, oh, some some artists lost their loft, gentrification. (laughs) Some artists got pushed out of their loft. And this is the discards. So I go over and I start pulling out what were, and that's what they were. They were the discards of someone that painted really big. So I'm pulling out six by nine canvases, six by six foot canvases that are covered with um, unfinished abstract paintings that were not good. They, they weren't it wasn't finished work in any way. It wasn't yeah, painting yeah. over someone's heart belt. Oh, right. It was these were beginnings that never or failures. This was the end of something being discarded. So yeah. one by one, I brought home about six of those canvases. And I had free, free stretchers, free right. canvas. I left the canvas on. I repurposed the surface with um, acrylic uh, modeling paste and one weekend I came home from the farmer's market with all our fresh vegetables. We were trying to do a kind of holistic diet for sure. So I was shopping in a farmer's market uh, really attempting to make wholesome food Uh, and I am not Cook can think King, the <laughs> Italian, he was the cook. Um, uh-huh. and I brought home a giant sunflower that was you know a foot across
0: yeah, diameter, yeah,
1: that was grown uh for seed, right? And I brought mm-hmm. it home in full bloom. I started, I set it up in my studio and I started painting just. The, this giant head and I painted the back of it and by the time I started the second painting and painted the front of it it was entirely gone to seed so it was all browns Yeah, uh, but when I painted it when it was fresh from the market I didn't paint the front because I thought that's such a cliche uh, you know <laughs> bright yeah, right. giant yeah. sunflower. I flipped it over and yeah. the back was it was so big and so sculptural the back became a whole interesting reverse of what you would expect. Uh, so I sure, ended up with these sure. two paintings uh, one was the front to seed and one was the back where the bloom's withering but you're looking at it from the, the rear structure of the bloom yeah. uh, of the head and um, And I, because I live near, um, I'm across the street from Little Italy. I'm down the street from Chinatown. So those were my two communities for food shopping. And um, I bought a bundle of Chinese fruit lychee and put them on a platter and did a giant um, fresco-like still life of, of these of this uh, round fruit with stems on a platter um, so that's uh, and the and that was six by eight six well it's not it's six foot horizontal by 54 inches or something fairly large you oh, know one yeah. of the paintings I did in that period um, um was the first painting I sold in a serious gallery, and it was a still life of sunflowers in the jar, but it was six feet by nine feet high. Wow. Um, oh, yeah. And so, in the three years that Ken was ill, I did maybe six to nine paintings like that, or less, even um, some I never finished. And with. I think. Yeah, um, yeah. So these are paintings that got painted on for three years.
0: Oh, wow, yeah. You
1: yeah. know, they just weren't painted and finished. Uh, they were, they were, they slowly emerged.
0: Jimmy, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your powerful story of life and art in New York City. You know, I've been wanting to do this interview ever since. Came and visited you in your studio in 2018. And I think it was well worth the wait. We hope that all of you will join us next week for more Saluki Stories. This has been John Pollitz, Dean of Library Affairs at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and your host for Saluki Stories. Our production would not have been made possible. Without the contributions of radio, television, and digital media assistant professor of practice Jennifer Pate, student editor producer Casey Avis Rouse, and our music production team Austin Davis and Dakota Holden. Go Dog!